Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Victoria Hillman. And me, Neil Phillips. And with us for this episode, we've got Steve because we're going to be talking about snakes. But before we get onto that, we're going to kick off with some podcast news, which I think you've got for us, Neil. Yes, we've hit a big milestone. We've actually hit 50,000 downloads. In fact, we've actually reached 55 now, which is rather nice. Uh, so thanks, everybody. I know we always say this every milestone, but... Uh... We really, really, really appreciate it. So, Steve, as our guest, you get to tell us what your latest wildlife sightings are first. So have you had any decent sightings recently? Uh, I've been out and about looking for bits and pieces recently, and I'm happy to report my first frog of the year this Sunday, uh, mm. which is nice. No other major findings. I've been out trying to find some reptiles, such as common lizards basking, but unfortunately they've eluded me so far. But uh, yeah, I'll let you guys know if I eventually find some. Any, any sightings for you, Vic? Um, yeah, I actually not only have frogs, but I also have spawn. So mm. the frogs returned um, in my pond a while ago, and I had three a few days ago, and first couple of little clumps of spawn, and then... Uh, that's now grown to five frogs and a lot more spawn. So it's it's a really good year for spawn in my pond. This is the most I've ever had. So I'm really, really happy. And yeah, the frogs are spawning in the other two ponds that I keep an eye on as well. And my tawny owls are, are calling, but they're, they're calling between about four and five in the afternoon uh, now. So they call almost every day between about four and five and then they don't call through the evening. Uh, but other than that, that's actually about it for me. So how about you, Neil? Uh, well, I had to go and do some filming. So... Um, I was in a nature reserve and yeah, a great white egret turned up, which was quite nice, which was a, a first for the reserve. Snowdrops, which I was mainly filming, were looking absolutely fabulous. It was a really sunny day when I was there. So those ladybirds, I think I mentioned in either the last podcast, podcast four, where there's hundreds of them all holding together, was just starting to move around a little bit. And seven buzzards were flying around together at once, which for Essex, if you live in the West Country, you might be thinking, huh, why is that? impressive no it's quite good for Essex seven buzzards what else have I seen I've plenty of sparrowhawks buzzing around and stuff but at home I've had frogs in the pond uh, which was nice no no spawn yet though <laughs> you got me feet there three frogs actually I've reached last night and today I, I had to go back to work and we were building a dead hedge and we moved a little bit of vegetation around and there was a slow worm a nice sort of 25 centimeter female slow worm she was Fairly active. I don't, I don't think we disturbed her from hibernating because pretty much as soon as we picked her up, she started moving around. So, but we put her back. You know, we've, where we built a dead hedge, it was quite a nice little pile of debris for her to just slid straight back into it and uh, disappeared. So that was rather nice. That's pretty cool. But we've also got some of your sightings. That's you, the listeners' sightings. We've got one this episode, haven't we, Vic? We have, and this is from Claire, and she said she's excited to see her first black cap. I swept the snow away to let the ground feeders get to their seed. Uh, a fuzzy through the window photo, and it's cold. <laughs> yeah. I think that was from a, a, uh, last week. That, that uh, yeah, I think that's probably when yeah. we still had the, the cold and the snow. Well, when most yeah. people had the cold and the snow. It might be two weeks from when you guys are hearing this, because <laughs> we're recording this at the end of February. But, uh, yeah. But something I did last, oh, a few days ago from the day of recording, was I asked what everyone was hoping to see this year i put up a picture of a marsh tit because i said i was hoping to see a willow tit finally and there was quite a good response from you all so uh thanks for that guys a uh, hawk honey that suffolk naturalist on instagram wanted to find a crisis virigula which is a type of jaw wasp one of these iridescent metallic ones i think that's the one that's found on heathland i'm not sure i need to check that uh kira 288 finally got some red wings the other day which was her main aim for this winter 
Yeah, she's got hers already. Um, Andrew Mason. Uh, that's Andrew Mason Photography on Instagram. Uh, finally got his local bar now after 16 years. So that was a... That's a nice tick to get. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen the, the barn owls around here. I've never photographed them, but I've seen them. And I have seen reports that there are actually little owls in the area as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it'd be quite interesting to maybe go and have a look for those. Oh, I've heard them at work, but they're just across the road in some private land. So I've never seen them, which is annoying. Very frustrating. Right next to where I park my car. <laughs> I can't see them. We had some response on Twitter as well. MJW Photo UK. Um, I'm hoping just to get out more this year, aren't we all? <laughs> okay, next up, we've got Corvid Crazy Chat, which is at Shepherd Wells. Um, and they'd like to see a little org. Annie Sutcliffe, who's at Annie Sutcliffe, would love to find Osamina Bicolor, which is a, a little solitary bee, isn't it? Is that the one that nests in? Um, and also, she said she'd settle for a Duke of Burgundy butterfly. And that they are rather lovely, actually. I think I would too. I've seen them before, but I'd love to see one again. I think quite a lot of people would settle for a Duke of Burgundy butterfly. <laughs> mm. Getting rarer and rarer, they are. Um, next up, we've got Lisa J. McLeish Photography. Who'd like to see a northern brown Argus butterfly, Jay and a cuckoo. That's a good list. <laughs> I like That's that. a good list. <laughs> and Rachel, who's the host of uh, Hidden Wings and Bloodlust um, that, uh, podcast. That's the podcast on ladybirds, um, which you should check out, actually. Uh, you can find her at HW. A B podcast. Um, she wants to see an eighteen spot ladybird on an eyed ladybird, so not really much surprise there. <laughs> she wants to see a certain ladybirds. I want to see an eyed ladybird. I've only ever seen one, and that was a, a captive one that was shown to me by a certain Helen Roy, Doctor Helen Roy, I should say, who just so happens to be our guest on the next episode. Hopefully, all being well. So that was a nice little lead in there. We've also had loads of follow back and feed up. Feed up, <laughs> follow back and feed up. What nurse that? <laughs> follow up and feed back. <laughs> I'm doing well tonight. Um, yes, uh, some of it is catching up from the last few weeks. I'm sorry we haven't um, been doing this very much, but uh, we had Elat-01 on Instagram. Uh, they said, hello, I wanted to message and show my support for the podcast. I'm absolutely in love. Well, thanks very much for that. That's very nice. I'm a second year uni student studying wildlife conservation and I've been non-stop listening to the podcast since I found out found it yesterday. I have a feeling it's going to really help keep me sane as the lockdown continues. So many, many thanks to you both. Keep us sane listening to me. Not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she also posted a really lovely video of a still pup at Donanook, uh, which is rather lovely. Um, it was very cute, <laughs> she said. We had some feedback from Rebecca91. Asked us to ID a red-coloured common frog. Uh, she's been listening listening since the podcast started and really likes it. Keep up the good work. It's totally wonderful. That, that, Love that's it. A pun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, you like that pun, but you don't like mine. I knew you'd like that pun. Not mine. Never mind. Anyway, moving swiftly on. Uh, Splace Nature said, "Hi Neil and Vic. I've recently discovered your wonderful podcast, and I'm trying to work my way through them all while pottering about." or at work. Um, and she asked about spawn and tadpoles stopping each other from developing, which we've covered, well, in a podcast review, Steve, didn't we? <laughs> and I think we've covered it since because uh, my ones in my pond are doing, have done exactly that, which is basically, just to give you the brief version, as tadpoles grow, they can release a hormone into the water to slow down the development of their brothers and sisters in the pond with them so they can develop quicker and emerge, which sort of spaces out the emergence. And then we've got one from a wolf's blog. I guess, it, Neil, is that meant to be superb, Neil and Vic? No, no, it says sup. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Okay, so we're it's kind like of... the youngsters talk. We should ask Steve. He's younger than us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, got one from a Wolf's blog. Sup, Neil and Vic. Been lovely listening in over the past week whilst out on my first week of wildlife photography walks. Great to hear. Yeah, lovely. Dagnum, Ingraborn and Rain and Marsh is getting its 50 pence in. We really do have excellent variety of forests and nature reserves, badgers, birds of prey, the lot here. So keep up the good work. Currently going through each episode, so I'll make sure to check in when completed. Happy hunting out there. Yeah. The local to me, fun sounds of it. Um, and Sharon Spratt, who's Orchica Ecology on, I believe, is that Facebook or Twitter or one of the others? Anyway, uh, it was on Twitter she put this. So um, discovering this podcast at UK Wildlife Pod. Great we listen. Love a good wildlife-themed podcast when it's an admin day or equipment sorting kind of day. But yeah, so thanks so much for all those messages, guys. It really, um, really helps lift the spirits and stuff when we're all locked down and makes it makes it all worthwhile. Although we like doing it anyway, but you know what I mean. We do, but <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great to have the feedback and also your sightings um, because mm. it it means that yeah we're able to kind of involve our listeners in it as well, which we really love. So yeah, please do keep yeah. sending us stuff, and then we can include them in forthcoming episodes. Yeah, and there was so much feedback that we decided to skip the news this episode. <laughs> so, which does mean more time to talk about snakes. Which can Ooh. never be a bad thing. Come on. Let's no, face snakes it. are awesome. So, we've got Steve with us, our resident almost, <laughs> <laughs> almost a heptile. Heptile? Oh, God, I'm really doing well with the worst snark. <laughs> heptile. I could have said something else, I mean, much worse. Heptile. Heptologist, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Reptile expert. Stick with that. <laughs> It's easier. So, Steve, welcome back. It's good to have you back on. Great to have uh, you back. Yeah. So, shall we get stuck straight in with the snakes? Um, with how many species of snakes we have in the UK? Because if you ask it at a pub quiz, um, people are likely to say three, but that's not the correct answer anymore, is it, Steve? Well, there are three native and two introduced. So, the total is five. So, yeah, I guess it depends on whether you count non-natives as species in that list although they are quite range restricted which you know may or may not lead them being included in, into that list but yeah we'll cover all five of those species uh, this evening but we'll focus on the the native ones and cover some questions at the end sounds like a plan so should we should we go through the five because obviously you start with the best of all the snakes which is obviously the grass snake it is all um, <laughs> controversial oh you're, you're gonna agree with me uh-huh you're outvoted this time vic I, i'm not but there we go yeah the only reason that you have my 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 opinion here is because it's my PhD study animal. So yeah, mm. I kind of have to like them until I finish. And you know, the the slog of writing up almost kills me, and then I can you know resent them slightly only to <laughs> rekindle my love for them afterwards. But uh, so yes, we, we we have the barred grass snake, the adder, and the smooth snake are our three native species, and then the two introduced are the Escalapian skate. Ah, oh, you said it wrong that time. It's usually me. It's catching tonight. <laughs> Neil, you've cursed me. I have. So, so uh, uh, our two non-native species are the Ascalapian snake and the European grass snake. So for those who don't know, the grass snake has actually been split into two species now, hasn't it, Steve? It has. This split happened back in the second half of 2017. I think it may have been August or September. And essentially what has happened is that the grass snakes here in the UK and west of the, the Rhine were always regarded as a separate subspecies to the European grass snake. So the previous subspecies name was Natrix, Natrix helvetica, and a team of German scientists had collected genetic data from 
cross snakes all across Europe and compared uh, a number of genes. And when comparing them, realized that this subspecies was actually a new species. And so it was then elevated to a species level to Natrix elvetica. And so, yeah, pretty much every grass snake you've ever seen in the UK is this species. And there was some confusion when this was announced because the tabloids clearly don't know how taxonomy work. But yeah, uh, it's interesting that, that, you know, there was this new species of, of, of reptile living in Europe right under our nose. And the reason being is because the two species look identical to each other. And this mm. often happens in herpetology uh, and other areas of zoology as well. Uh, and this is known as cryptic species, where you have these morphologically identical or very similar species living aside one another. And it's only when you go in there and look at their genes and the DNA that you realize that they're not the same. And, you know, you're scratching your head trying to figure things out why they're not matching up. And then the only other explanation there is that you've got more than one species. So grass snakes are not well you do find them in grass sometimes don't you but they're not the best name because you tend to see them either in or around aquatic habitats hence my my favoritism towards <laughs> them because they're the pond snake the closest thing we've got to a water or pond snake yes no 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 very much so yeah i, I think that like slow worms their name is a bit of a misnomer and a huge generalization you are most likely to find them in or around water and this is because they primarily feed on amphibians and where the frogs and toads and newts live, they live in ponds for the breeding season at least. And so, yeah, that's where uh, you're likely to find them. And so if you find a snake swimming in a pond or a lake, it's very much likely going to be a grass snake. Despite not having any limbs, they are superb swimmers. And yeah, they can shoot across a body of water faster than you can blink. It's you know absolutely uh, stunning just how quickly they can move if you scare them that they decide to to swim for it yes they can get quite big as well can't they they can so there are records of them growing to 1.8 meters uh you know which is quite long you know that's you know six feet in length which is almost as long as i am tall and that's very tall (laughs) (laughs) It, it is uh but unfortunately, there is evidence to suggest that their, their size is decreasing. And, you know, this isn't known why yet. It may be climate change. It may be because the adults aren't living long enough to be able to uh, to attain those sizes. So the largest snake that I've caught as part of my ongoing studies, and, you know, I've caught almost 800 individuals over the past couple of years. You know, the, the largest snake there was 1 meter 17. So, yes, yeah, still a long way to go from that maximum. But, yeah, snakes maxing out at 1.2 1.3 meters in the uk currently you know that's about the the maximum they're being seen there are a few larger snakes out there but i think that they're very rarely seen you know you know it's like those towels of people going to the amazon and finding the 100 foot long anaconda uh you know if, if they're out there surely we would see them snakes can be elusive that you know does make surveying and studying them very hard because you have to be in the right place at the right time to find them as I'm sure many people will know, and that's one of the reasons why I think they're so maligned, is because people just don't have exposure to them, you know. And because of that, they look to the media and their friends and everything else to try to form an opinion on these animals. And of course, everything is just based in fiction as opposed to reality. And therefore, people have a fear because they don't understand. So yeah, hopefully after hearing about our snakes and what I've got to say, you guys won't be as scared of them if you are scared of snakes. Uh, And hopefully see them as uh, wonderful uh, components of the ecosystem. And stunningly beautiful animals as well. Oh, yeah. We we, we used to have, um, I haven't seen her for a few years, but we had a huge female grass snake um, at one of the sites I used to check on regularly. I mean, she was huge. 
stunningly beautiful. I haven't seen her for quite a few years, but she's by far the biggest snake that I've ever seen. One of the times we found her, there was actually a, a ball of about 15 snakes. <laughs> she was in that. Yeah, no, the competition between snakes to meet is quite high. I'm sure many people will be familiar with the scenes of garter snakes in Canada or coming up hibernation and just warming up and, you know, writhing in their thousands to try to, to mate with the few select females. You know, that isn't as common in grass snakes, but it depends on, you know, how dense the population is, what the temperature is like, and, and, yeah, just how many males to females there are. And, you know, if she's a big female, then, yeah, she's going to be potential suitor to lots of males. They're all going to have their eye on her because she's going to be the, the most attractive female in that population. You know, a large size equals a large number of eggs. And, of course, those males will try to pass on their genes to as many offspring as possible. So hopefully, you know, she was able to mate with the, the best suited male for, to her likes as well. Yeah, hopefully I might be able to get up and go and see if see what's happening up at that site at some point. So, Steve, if someone was to see a snake in the wild, how would they know if it's a grass snake or not? Is there particular things to look for? Yes. So, one it is their size. You know, grass snakes tend to be quite large. They're the largest native snake in the UK. Two is the dark coloration. Would generally quite dark coloration. They they're an olive to dark green in colour. They also have a very distinctive black and yellow collar on their neck, which can easily distinguish them from our other two species. The yellow bands on their collar may also be white or orange in coloration, depending on which temperature the eggs were incubated at, which is an interesting fact Mm. that uh, I only found out recently. And the other thing as well is on their undersides of their belly, that they often play dead when they're disturbed. They have a checkerboard pattern, which can sometimes be confused with the pattern of an adder, but we'll come to that shortly. Is there, um, someone was saying online about the collar fading as they get older. Is, is that actually been proven or is that just a theory? It does happen in some populations, particularly in Sweden and areas of Scandinavia. But in the snakes that I've been catching and handling in Norfolk, which I know is only a representative population of those snakes in the area, the collars on the large females are just as vivid as the young. So yeah, I think perhaps it's linked to the population because there's evidence to suggest that snakes lose the collar coloration on Jersey. So yeah, maybe there are populations in the very south of England where this also occurs, but in my experience, I haven't seen it just yet. Well, as someone that's handled lots of grass snakes, uh, would you like to um, explain what happens if you Um, threaten or pick up a grass snake for those that aren't aware well (laughs) and why you wear well one of the reasons you wear gloves when you do it (laughs) well yes so one uh, one of the uh, the grass snakes wonderful defense mechanisms is to produce a foul smelling and foul tasting musk which they excrete from an anal gland and this is then twinned with them playing dead to try to fool a predator into thinking that they're a dead animal the smell is something that you never forget. Fortunately, because I've been so overexposed to it, is that, yeah, I can no longer smell it unless, you know, I get right in there and give it a good whiff, which which, was, which is great uh, until you until, uh, when I could, when you go straight from the field site, straight to the pub afterwards for a well-deserved pint, and everybody's staring at you because you smell of grass snake. I'm like, Steve, mate, you've been handling the snakes again, haven't you? are like, yeah, I think you're in a shower. And you go, oh, no, the snakes, of course. Because, yeah, I'm completely oblivious to the fact that, my, you know, my trousers are stained in all this grass snake mask and, you know, just happily, you know, scooting along, going to get my pint of cider after a hard day's work. And, yeah, just stinking the place out. So, uh, 
Yes, if, if you know if you're handling grass snakes because you're rescuing them from a cat or you're trying to move them out of harm's way, etc., then yeah, do be aware that they may they may decide to defecate a musk all over you as a uh, anti-predatory response. The, the best way to clean it off, if you really want to know, uh, is with Colgate toothpaste, uh, which will. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure the chemistry, but through trial and error, that's what I always used to carry as a kid. Uh, it just helps to neutralise the smell and also mask it, I think, with the mint. But but yeah, that's my <laughs> little bit of advice there. And I would say, if if you if you do get it on your hands, whatever you do, do not then wipe your hands down your trousers. <laughs> that, that, that true, because then you'll be back in my yeah. square one position where, yeah, going to the pub afterwards is not a fun time. Make sure you wash your hands as quickly as possible and try not to touch anything else. And yeah, don't touch your eyes or your mouth or it was just, just going to cause you even more upset. Yeah, I'm a, being a nosemic, I'm always a bit proud. I mean, I very rarely handled a grass snake. The one time I, I really did handle one for any length of time was one that was egg bound. So she was totally, uh, you know, she didn't do any defensive. She was just sort of laying there in a pond. Yeah. No, I, I do remember a story someone told me of they picked up a beautiful big grass snake um, when they're doing a survey and put her down, picked up his camera. I didn't really think, took lots of pictures. Of course, that lovely musk got absorbed into the rubber grip of his camera. And for a year later, every time he opened his camera back, there was a horrible smell. <laughs> Which makes me chuckle every time I hear that story. It is very pungent, so it doesn't surprise me. Because when they go on their back, they sort of lay on their back, don't they? And they, they, some in the books, they don't always do it. They do that. They open their mouth and the tongue flops out, and it's all for the full show, isn't it? It's... Oh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. They don't pull any punches when it comes to acting that they're dead. And the one thing as well is, is that you know, that they only do it for uh, you know as long as they think they fooled you. But they always keep a beady eyes watching you to just to make sure that you're going to go away. Obviously, when I'm handling a processing snakes as part of my research it's great when they play dead because it makes them a lot more manageable in terms of taking photographs and measuring them and weighing them etc without having them thrash around but yeah it, it does make me chuckle every time that it happens and, and i tend to see it more in the younger snakes than the older snakes i think the older snakes just realize what's going on or you know in their mind like oh god it's the pervert with the swabs in the camera again you know we'll just let him do his job and you know we'll, we'll be back in the world after this shortly but yeah <laughs> that's just uh yeah I, I would love to see inside their mind whilst i'm there handling them when the science progresses to that stage that is the first thing i'm going to do when it comes to being able to read animals minds <laughs> you might not want to know <laughs> when you get an uh an, an overpowering urge to swallow a newt hole then you know you've gone too far <laughs> Right, shall we move on to your favourite, Vic? Yes, go on, let's do it. The adder. It is a beautiful snake. See, adders are our only venomous snake. I'm just going to put it out there quickly that, that my pet peeve is people confusing poisonous and venomous. A poison has to be, well, generally ingested, or they can always also be absorbed through the skin, whereas a venom needs a delivery mechanism such as fangs or barbs or a stinger or something along those lines which technically means that stinger nettles are venomous so there's a bit mm. of information for you to blow your mind whenever you're listening to this and because of this venomous reputation of adders they've got a bit of a bad rap uh, almost like spiders and sharks you know they're a little bit misunderstood but unfortunately they are greatly imperiled and some research published a couple of years ago, I think in the start of 2018. The past couple of years have just become a blur. So if I'm making stuff up there, then someone please correct me. But with the data collected from the Make the Adder Count, it demonstrated that 90% of adder populations are in decline. 
and within the next decade we could lose them entirely apart from a few strongholds in the Midlands and the north of England, which, you know, is absolutely, yeah, I'm, I'm just lost for words because I don't know how to, how to verbalise what I'm feeling about that. You know, it's very upsetting to think that, you know, we could lose a species from our landscapes just through neglect and loss of habitat, etc. So adders, you know, people always mistake adders and grass snakes. Grass snakes are quite large and then people see them and they're like, oh no, there's an adder in my garden. And it turns out to be a grass snake. Adders are the smallest species of snake we have in the UK. You know, they grow to about 60 centimetres in length, maybe a little bit larger if you're lucky. They're quite squat and they're sexually dimorphic so the males and females look different. The males tend to be a silver to grey colour with a black diamond or zigzag pattern down their back and the females are a copper brown colour with a darker brown zigzag or a diamond pattern down their back. Because they're venomous, the males uh, tend to dance in the spring, and this is where they will try to pin each other down to show dominance uh, and, and win over females, etc. Which, you know, is quite interesting to think that some reptiles essentially rut for females like we, we see in mammals such as deer. They're restricted to heathland sites, open woodlands, and, you know, those sorts of associated habitats, which unfortunately are becoming rarer and rarer in our countryside. And populations easily get fragmented. And, you know, once you get a very small population and it starts inbreeding, then, you know, that then enters an extinction vortex and yeah unfortunately a lot of small populations are lost because there just isn't enough genetic diversity to sustain them and so there are a number of counties throughout the UK where adders are extinct you know in Cambridgeshire where I've done a lot of research and, and surveys over the past few years you know there are only a handful of adders left in the entire county I know Oxfordshire has declared adders extinct and there are a few others but you know most populations are holding on by the skin of their teeth and you know they need people championing them as well as the habitat work being done to ensure that these populations are connected to each other and secured so adders may seem scary that they may have a little bit of an image problem but they are in serious trouble and without them who knows what could happen you know a similar things happening in the US in terms of people rounding up rattlesnakes for their rattlesnake roundups which are completely barbaric and like like adders rattlesnakes feed on small mammals and in some parts of the u.s where this takes place they're seeing huge outbreaks of diseases such as lyme and other tick-borne diseases because all of the hosts for these animals the, the small rodents are you know the population is going through the roof which means that in the environments where people then interact with them they're picking up these these ticks and then the disease is being transferred to, to people. So who knows, something like that may occur here in the UK if we do unfortunately lose uh, our adders altogether. But hopefully, you know, we'll act before that point. Mm. I think that there's there's the other issues. I mean, they're very sensitive as well, aren't they? Um... They are extremely sensitive. And yeah, uh, particularly to disturbance from uh, dog walkers and people walking by and everything else. And did the males come out first before the females because... They need to bath, they need to get their metabolism up and going because they need to produce sperm, uh, whereas the females have already got eggs ready to go internally, as it were, because adders are quite weird for reptiles in that they, they produce their young internally as an adaptation to the cold. So unlike most reptiles which lay eggs, adders feed their young via a placenta like, like a mammal and will, will bask in the open 
and then give birth to to live snakes as a result of that you know they, they don't need to produce any any hard calcium eggs like you would expect like grass snakes and sand lizards do etc which you know is is very interesting but it has allowed them to to penetrate right into the, the the arctic circle so they are the most normally found snake in the world and they have one of the largest ranges of any snake you know they're found right across eurasia which is you know just insane from here in the uk all the way over to mongolia and everywhere in between so you know they are very wide-ranging and because of that you know on, on a global scale they you know they aren't threatened but because we're an island nation and because of all of the the habitat loss that's been going on and, and persecution and everything else, you know, they are suffering huge declines here. And I mean, I, I know already that, and, and you probably already know this, Steve, that, you know, sightings have already started for adders this year. They're my favourite snake species. I absolutely love them. I think they're gorgeous and hugely misunderstood. But, you know, as a zoologist, first and foremost, and photographer second, one of my massive bugbears is they've become a photographic trophy species over the last couple of years. And I've seen this a lot, unfortunately. And, you know, and I've also seen the disturbance and the impact that people can have because you get people that basically want to just go photograph them and they don't actually really think about the impact they're having on them. No, um, no, I, I totally agree. And, you know, you see videos of people free handling them as there as well which you know is completely irresponsible their venom isn't likely to kill you although if you're bitten you should still seek medical attention but yeah it's just that level of disturbance which could potentially mean that that animal doesn't breed that year and you know in a small population where not every individual breeds every year could be disastrous and, and yeah I, I know i completely understand what you mean about the this trophy species if you're going to photograph adders do it on a tripod from a distance with a telephoto lens. Don't get right on top of them and, and hassle them. Because, yeah, that's they're, they're completely irresponsible. You know, don't pose the animals. Don't do any of the the things that, you know, that you can clearly see that are done with the animals. Respect them, give them some space and just let them do their thing. Yeah, one of my, my local sites now, last time I went up there, which was a couple of years ago, yeah, there's wardens out almost every day in in the area because they had such a huge problem with people basically just capturing them and then putting them right out in the open to take photographs and then just leaving them not even putting them back where they found them yeah there's a high instance of dog walkers up there as well that has other problems but you know just for me and i i love to photograph and i've had some amazing encounters with them where i've just been laid some distance away and they've come out and basked right in front of me but i've not moved i've not done anything i've just stayed still and sometimes you can get really lucky but you know it's just a i just think enjoy them where they are and you know in their natural habitat oh no 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 100 percent. and yeah they they can be quite inquisitive just like you know as any species can you know there have been times when i've been you know collecting field data and this happened to me last summer when i was there processing a snake and some otters came up and you know started to to check me out and i, I think it was that opportune moment where they could see that I had my hands full trying to measure the snake and take weight, weight measurements as well as length measurements. So they realised that I couldn't uh, get my camera out to take a snap of them. But yeah, everything is curious and they're going to come investigate you. If you and, you know, obviously they, they can smell you as well as see you. And yeah, they, they just want to know what you are. You know, if you're new and interesting in their environment, they're going to try to suss you out and figure out if you're a foe if you're food if you're whatever else you, you you know you could be in their mind and you know that is one of the best things about watching nature is just having those those great little moments with different species and and you know watching them trying to figure out what exactly you are i have to admit if, if you've ever had the chance to see a baby adder they have to be the cutest thing going they really do 
I think they are. <laughs> they, 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 they are quite cute. And I think one of the one of the things that has kind of sealed the fate of the Edda is the fact that their eyes are red or orange, which obviously gives them a sort of evil look. And they also kind of have that sort of angry eyebrow scale over the eye, which doesn't help either. But uh, yeah, that's just there to prevent the sun from going in their eyes whilst they're basking you know they, they don't have any facial expressions because you know it's scaled there's no there's no muscle or or, or you know, fur or stuff there uh so yeah I, I don't know how you can exactly infer an expression there but obviously we like to see patterns in stuff that isn't really there uh hence why people have seen jesus on toast and all that sort of stuff but uh <laughs> but yeah uh no, adders are amazing, and I think more should be done to champion them and protect them because, unfortunately, we could lose them you know, within the next decade if we're not careful. But they're not quite the rarest species we've got yet, are they? Um, they're not, so no. Should we talk about the third native species? Let's go for it. So that's the smooth snake. It is. So the smooth snake is the rarest native species of snake in the UK, and if you ask most people what the three species of snake are in the UK, I doubt many of them would be able to list the smooth snake. So they're very range restricted. They are only found in heathland sites in Surrey, Dorset and Hampshire, and potentially the surrounding counties there as well. They feed primarily on other reptile species, so you tend to find them on sites which have all six of our native reptiles. They're our only constrictor, so adult smooth snakes will happily munch down on adders, on grass snakes, on sand lizards, on slow worms, on common lizards, introduced lizard species as well, such as the bull lizard or, or the western green lizard. And their habitat is, is under threat as well, you know, heathland and the associated uh, woodland uh, with it as well. And they exist at very low densities, which means surveying and finding them can be extremely tricky. It's so much so that I've never seen one in the wild. And so referring back to your earlier question, Neil, I'd love to see a smooth snake this year if possible, but I'm not sure. Uh, depending on on what my, my time scale is, my project and the whole coronavirus situation, maybe it'll have to be next year or the year after. But uh, I will see one eventually, I'm sure, you know, I, I promise you that. And superficially, they look similar to adders. They're a silvery bronze colour. They have almost what looks like a zigzag pattern down their back, but it isn't quite there. It, you know, it it's, uh, tends to be some dark lines or ridges and they are a very odd-looking species because they're kind of like a blend between grass snakes and adders. You know, it's like their illegitimate love child. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if you guys have never seen one before and you go away and look at images online, I'm pretty sure you'll have that, that same thought. Unfortunately, like adders, you know, their populations are in a very precarious state. But thankfully, we've caught these guys early, so conservation efforts are ongoing, and there is some evidence that the populations may be increasing, which is great, but they're not out of the woods yet. So, you know, effort needs to continue to, to ensure that we don't do smooth snakes as well. Although the ideal thing would be to restore them back to their former range, but the heathland where they used to exist throughout the UK has unfortunately gone to, to build houses and shopping centres and golf courses and whatever else people develop land for so yeah that's unrealistic so we need to protect the areas where they live now and restore areas where we can and yeah just try to give them a bit more breathing room uh, particularly in the face of threats such as climate change so that the areas where they're found don't entirely become uninhabitable uh, to them in the, in the near future yeah they're interesting uh, i have seen one <laughs> have you seen I, one I've, in the uk Vic? i haven't seen one in the uk but i have seen them in europe 
Yeah. And they're uh, Schedule 5, aren't they? So you basically do need a licence to even disturb them, let alone handle them. Yes, so, yeah, yes, you need a licence to survey, survey for them, to disturb them, and, yeah, all of that sort of stuff. Very similar to, to Great Crescent Newts and uh, Nasdaq Toads and Sand Lizards. And Dormice and Bats and <laughs> some of these furry things as well. Right? So some, uh, some other non-reptile and amphibian animals which yeah. may or may not exist in the British countryside. <laughs> 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 we're too Part busy otters, looking obviously. for other stuff <laughs> oh otters they, are, do you know what, they, 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 they count as uh, freshwater animals not mammals otters they're too cool <laughs> <laughs> i've decided it's like waterfalls so that's that's covered the, the the three native ones and the fourth one i'm gonna let you pronounce because i always pronounce it wrong <laughs> so the, 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 uh, this is the fourth snake species we're covering and the first introduced snake is the ascalapian snake which is named after the Greek god Asclepius, who was the Greek god of medicine. So if you've ever seen the snake around the scepter as the symbol for a hospital or a doctor's surgery, etc., that is the staff of Asclepius. And yeah, that's the Asclepian snake wrapped around it, which is a funny, interesting factoid for everybody there. And yeah, they are Europe's largest species of snake, growing up to about two metres in length. They're semi-arboreal, which I think is pretty cool. You know, you tend to find them in shrubs at around head height as, as well as on the ground and there are three introduced populations in the UK the two that have been most known uh, and most well studied uh, are one on the the grounds of the Welsh Mountain Zoo and another one along the Regent's Canal in London and obviously in both of those locations you know you've got a, a more than steady supply of rats to be able to support these snakes which is great and then recently, a colleague and I confirmed a third population in Southern Wales in Bridgend. And uh, and yeah, we're, we're hoping to to be able to launch some research into that population to figure out where they came from and, you know, how it's persisting there. Because, yeah, we have literally no idea. Some guy that my, my colleague Dave knows sent him some photos of some grass snakes. And uh, he was like, hang on a minute, these aren't grass snakes, these are Escalapian snakes. And we, we did some further digging and have been there for about, 15 or 20 years and you know they're quite common in the area but again because of the whole coronavirus situation we haven't been able to do anything uh, on that front properly so yeah it may have to wait a little while i doubt the snakes are going anywhere if they've been there that long it's not like you know they've only been there since last tuesday fingers crossed that all comes together but you're unlikely to find them unless you're in those three specific locations they're a olive yellow color their skin is almost reminiscent of a twix wrapper you know it's that sort of color and because they are a non-native species, if you pick one up, you can't release it back into the wild without breaking the law. So, yeah, you've either got to stick it in your pocket or euthanize it. So the moral of the story is don't pick them up. Photograph from afar. And, of course, if you do see them at either of those locations or others, please take a photograph and record it because there's probably other populations hiding out there somewhere where people have just, for some reason or other, assumed they were odd-looking grass snakes and have just gone under-recorded. And I guess as well, like with, you yeah, know, if you're in, into your, your reptiles and your snakes in particular, you might, you know, you've noticed something and say, OK, well, it doesn't look quite normal. I'm going to ask a friend or whatever. But for a lot of people, it would just be, it's a snake and move on. Unfortunately. It's an adder. <laughs> be yeah. It's an adder. It's a snake. It's an adder. It looks like a slow worm. It's an adder. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think it, it's one of those things. It takes the right kind of person to be able to question what it is that being presented in front of them and whether or not it is what people purport it to be, which is yeah, why this population in Bridgend has gone undiscovered for so long, despite the fact that they're found in residential gardens and 
at an allotments. Hopefully there aren't too many other weird and wonderful species hiding out there, but who knows? You know, snakes are very elusive and are hard to survey consistently unless you utilise artificial cover objects or other such standardised methods. Maybe something weird and wonderful will turn up elsewhere, but, you know, uh, I'm not going to hold my breath just yet. The important thing is those snakes aren't doing any harm either. Certainly the ones in Regent's Canal just eating the rats. Which oh, no, tells... exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, you know, they're doing a, you know, a bit of ecosystem services by uh, being natural pest controllers. And what's the stat in London? Like, you're never more than three feet away from a rat. Uh, there's probably plenty of them there to, to keep them happy uh, and support the small population that persists there. Although, you know, th- th- there is some evidence to suggest that it may be declining. But, you know, no one's really been studying the population intensively enough to find out just based on some casual surveys and uh, infrequent reports. So so who knows, you know, maybe that's a potential research project for somebody else in the future. Yeah, and the last one we've kind of covered, isn't it, the uh, Natrix Natrix. So what 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 we used to know as, as kids as uh, Natrix Natrix, the grass snake, our ones are now, as we've mentioned, our Natrix Helveticus. But there are a few Natrix Natrix around, aren't there? There, there are, so yes. Natrix Natrix now uh, is only found east of the Rhine and into Eastern Europe. Uh, and so there are a couple of populations that have been identified for some time that through looking at their their genes again using genetic techniques match populations closely associated to those in Hungary and Bulgaria, I believe. And yeah, so they also, you know, the coloration and pattern is slightly different. They tend to be striped as opposed to barred. So they have, you know, stripes along their, their, their back as well as along their flanks. And you know, that's one of the easiest ways to, to tell them apart. But, you know, it's interesting to know that, that these species are there. And, you know, we're not sure when they were introduced, but they were, you know, a popular pet back in the 70s. So maybe some escaped and found Britain to be to their liking and have been there ever since. But, uh, but yeah. yeah. It's very unlikely that you're going to come across one because yeah, they're in uh, very small and isolated populations. Yes, so somebody at some point has shipped in a species that to, at the time we thought occurred in the UK to sell as pets rather than just catch them in the wild in the UK, I guess. Maybe they can. It was easy to get hold of in Hungary or Bulgaria or whatever, but a bit bizarre that, isn't it? It's really weird. Do they occur in like the same areas as our, our native grass snake? Oh yeah, yeah. They they pretty much found the same habitats. They you know they have a very similar ecology, which is why the uh, the whole revelation of our grass snakes being a different species just blew everyone's mind. Because yeah, they are pretty much carbon copies of each other. It's just that it appears that the Ryan acted as a geographical barrier between those two two species, so they can no longer interbreed. And through uh, our good friend, evolution became two distinct species. Women splitters. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> we've we've so, been down the route of taxonomy now, but uh, yeah. yeah, we'll save that for another day. Yeah. I'll, 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 people go, what's he talking about splitters? Basically, in taxonomy, that's people that name and decide what's a species and what isn't. You've got the lumpers who like to put lots of things in one species or one genus or whatever. And you've, but you've also got the splitters who like to split things into different species on and you know there's a debate whether they're species or not in some cases but because of genetics it's a bit well even then there's a little bit of debate but it's less debatable i think it's probably the best way of putting it isn't it uh, yeah yeah well that was a a good general run through of our snakes but we have got a couple of questions the first one's from nick gates who previous viewers may remember from (laughs) the last episode (laughs) of this podcast he said 
I have a question. How far can grass snakes disperse? Every few years, I find a young grass snake in my wildlife garden. I've never found an adult, despite finding dozens of slow worms and having good habitat. So I'm assuming there must be youngsters dispersing. That's a very good question. Grass snakes are, by no doubt, our most motile native species of reptile. And yeah, they can disperse up to a kilometre or more over a very short period of time. I guess it all depends on habitat connectivity, what sort of barriers are in the way, you know, whether there's any any roads or, you know, buildings. Uh, you know, they also use natural features such as rivers and hedgerows and stuff to, to disperse. So, yeah, it's hard to say because I don't think anybody's done a definitive study to see how far they actually go. But a couple of kilometres is probably the upper limits until they, they find somewhere that they decide to call home. So I know there has been dispersal, or certainly there's been some research carried out with adders, hasn't there, with see how far they travel? There has, yes. So maybe maybe a similar kind of project for, for grass snakes would be a good one. I know, definitely, yeah. And I think it's best to find a couple of populations where you've got one that's in an urban setting and one in, you know, a semi-natural, natural setting, radio track them, and then, yeah, see how far they move over a given period of time. I mean, I had one in my garden, not in my pond. It was typical. I get these pond, like dragonflies in my garden, not in my pond. But I had one in a bag of compost. It, it was probably one of the year before youngsters. But it, I look on a map and I'm trying to find decent habitat. There's a lot of ditches, you know, about half a mile, a mile away. But yeah, whether they're somehow hanging on in the gardens of where I live, I don't know. But yeah, no, and there's not exactly many wildlife-friendly gardens around, but plenty of hedgerows. So maybe they're just living a slightly more terrestrial or it's just a wanderer this one i found but uh yeah interesting things we've yeah, got we, another question haven't we vic we have yeah from john cranfield he said oh hurrah good old steve talking about snakes have to agree there <laughs> could analysis of snake scales be used to assess heavy metal contamination in our environment and would that have a bearing on disease susceptibility also what's the ideal recipe for a grass snake egg laying pile Interesting. So on the the uh, the first one there, in terms of the, the heavy metal contamination, yes, you can detect heavy metal contamination in snakes using scale clippings. So my good friend Damien Latouf is doing this in Western Australia using their equivalent of a grass snake, I guess. And because it's Australia, it's venomous, so no surprises there. <laughs> uh, so, so he's looking at the heavy metal contamination in tiger snakes and the best method is to use tissue samples such as the liver but that isn't always possible because you don't want to go around euthanizing snakes so yeah opportunistically collect those from carcasses and test them but a, a recent technique that they've used is using the great old technology of lasers to compare the heavy metals found in soil and then in the snakes themselves and so yeah there's some interesting research coming coming up there if you if you're interested in that john i suggest you go uh, and look up damien's research more thoroughly because you know there's no doubt that it could be applied to to grass snakes and you know to other snake species in europe and across the rest of the world particularly in areas such as wetlands where where grass snakes tend to occur which may have formerly been industrial sites such as brick pits or gravel extraction sites there's going to have been heavy metal contamination there and that's going to bioaccumulate as it goes up the, the food chain. And so, yeah, if you could take some scale clips from those snakes, then I'm sure you could get a decent reading of uh, of what's going on. And yeah, it's something that I, I would love to try in the future. But at the moment, 
I am, you know, busy working mm. with the disease side of things. And in terms of disease susceptibility, who knows, you know, th this is something that we haven't explored yet. So, you know, it could it could have some some impact or it may not affect things at all. Maybe the snakes are resilient. Who, who knows? Again, another project for a future time. If someone wants to give me some extra time on the clock and give me lots of money to answer these questions, please tweet me or uh, find me on, on Instagram and I'll, I'll be happy to do the research. And mm. finally, in terms of the best materials to use for grass snake nesting sites, I think you know we have to emulate what is found in nature. So using rotting vegetation and log piles uh, is probably best. I know that compost heaps tend to, to do quite well. And to me, they are just, you know, artificial rotting reed beds. And that is my expert opinion. Although if someone has a better idea or, or evidence to back it up as well, then again, please get in touch. And I'm, I'm guessing with the, with the contamination thing, that could go for pretty much any snake, I guess. Yes, yeah, I know, mm. of course, yeah. Obviously, yeah, we're just using uh, wetland snakes here as an example, but yeah. There's the reason, because it's like one of the populations that, you know, I, I've known and, and visit um, frequently is, is actually an area where there used to be a lot of mining. And actually, when you go up there, there's just black slag piles everywhere. And, you know, we, we know like from studies that have been done that there are high levels of contaminants like in the environment there and, and you get very specific plant species that recolonize over time. So it would actually be quite interesting to find out if there's a difference in those snake populations compared to other sites. Oh, no, certainly. And I think that once you've been able to establish whether or not there is a difference, then you can start to look at cause and effect and figure out how those populations are being affected. And then perhaps you can then help to mitigate the leaching of those heavy metals into the environment or, you know, find ways to, to soak them up somehow so that they don't end up in the snakes. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think a bit of just for those that don't know, bioaccumulate is basically where you get something like the plants will absorb either poison or toxin or heavy metal from the environment. Then when, say, a let's drink, take the pond, so the algae absorbs a load of toxins, then a tadpole comes along and eats some of that plant. It eats a lot, lot of plant. But um, a lot of that passes through it, but the toxin will accumulate in the body. So the tadpole gets a higher dose. And then, of course, when a grass snake comes along, or say a newt comes along and eats that, that gets even more, all the toxins from all the tadpoles is eaten stay in its body. And so, of course, by the time the grass snake gets to the newt, it's quite a toxic newt to start with, but every newt, toxic newt it eats, all the toxins from that gets accumulated in its body. So the predators at the top, so in the sea, it's like tuna and sharks and stuff like that, suffer the most from the toxins. And for those familiar with the DDT problems, the pesticide, that's that's why all the birds of prey eggs and the otters all declined. So the bird of prey, the, the toxins and DDT made the eggs not, be solid basically they, they were really weak and they crack before they could hatch so they couldn't breed and i can't remember what the exact effect on otters was but it was very negative i think it might just kill them to be honest um and that's why you get lots of mercury in tuna because all the mercury we've released into the sea gets accumulated in tuna which are top predators it's um yes it's a horrible thing <laughs> the environment by accumulation but um yes but obviously when it accumulates in the snake's body you can then get it out of the scales which is what we've been talking about the last five minutes or so just in case anyone didn't know what bioaccumulation was. <laughs> so hopefully that's cleared it up a bit <laughs> or made it more confusing. I don't know it. <laughs> hopefully the first.
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I must build some grass snake piles at work, actually, because apparently there's lots on the river there, but I've never seen one there. Although my colleague saw one climbing a tree. I was just going to say, if you build it, they will come. Well, yes. Well, this is the thing, you know, grass snakes love laying their eggs in rotting vegetation. And yeah, I'm sure females will, you know, arrange quite a quite a while to find a suitable site to lay their eggs. They won't just leave them anywhere. If you, if you build the prime baby snake real estate i'm sure you know all of the, the females will turn up yes yeah, so it'd be all right building it on a floodplain wouldn't it because they'd be nesting in the summer where they wouldn't really get flood because i believe your site's a floodplain isn't it it is yeah yeah and that, that, they must breed on the site so yeah mm, that's good to know i might I might put it on the list of things to do this summer. <laughs> if no schools if no schools turn up i'll have to have some things to do and that's a, a good one to do i think well, that might get washed away in the winter if we have another flood like we had three times in the last month there. I, I think, think that's, that's probably a good, good place, place to stop because, because we're, we're probably starting to go over time and, and <laughs> as usual. We have gone over the hour mark, I think. Um, but yeah, thanks again for coming on, Steve. It's always, very welcome. Welcome. always great to talk snakes and hopefully we might have, although I guess with a lot of our listeners, they probably have a, a love of snakes. But, mm. you know, for anyone that doesn't, hopefully we've been able to kind of change your mind a little bit about them as well. Yeah, they're wonderful animals. Um, and I'll leave you with a stat. I think it's hard to get exact figures, but roughly a hundred-ish people are bitten by adders a year. And most of them is where the adder's been trod on. Or when you see it in the papers, it was after I picked up the adder, when the adder thinks <laughs> you're trying to eat it. And for some comparisons, I believe there's something in the, the range of somewhere between three and 5,000 dog bites yeah, so you're more in danger of that dog running around in the park than not you should be scared of the dog, obviously. <laughs> oh, giving everyone canophobia now. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're more in danger of a dog biting you, far more in danger of a dog biting you than an adder. So, and you have to go looking for the adders to find them. <laughs> Take it from someone that's been, you know, trying to photograph them for years and only managed it a handful of times. And so I supposedly know what I'm doing as well. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're, they're never easy to find. And um, the other two are basically harmless and most snakes will if you tread firmly on the ground will disappear before you even see them i think is a is a fair thing to say isn't it steve trying to find snakes for research purposes isn't as easy as it sounds and yeah thankfully i've got the reflexes of a hawk to be able to to, to you know to grab them but it's, it's not it's not for everybody and you know if you do happen to come across a snake this you know this spring is you know just come out of hibernation and so they're not exactly as sharp-witted as they would be normally you know just give them a wide berth and appreciate them from a distance and i'm sure that you know the snake would appreciate it yeah yeah so this time of year, i think we did cover this earlier didn't we but but just to re-emphasize it um at this time of year uh, we do need to give them a bit of space so they can mature their sperm and and eggs because uh, it's like a critical time of year for them it is um, a really really important time of year so please don't go picking them up just to get photos and and please 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 this is a massive bugbear of mine do not poke them and provoke them just to get a strike shot oh. it, it yeah. it's horrible it really is i mean to be honest if somebody poked me and aggravated me that much i would actually probably have a go at them um you know i'm not venomous but and I don't have fangs, but, um, yeah. you know, please don't because it's incredibly harmful to them and it's not nice. No. And the, the thing is, someone might do it the next day and then the next day and then the next day or multiple times a day. And that's that's where the damage really comes in then. Mm. But, uh, and one last um, little snip, snippet for everybody is that um, snakes are deaf. So when we say don't disturb them, 
you can shout them all you like, but <laughs> it's the uh, the stomping on the ground that's the problem, isn't it? The vibration. Mm. Um, or if you said high bass, actually, they're about to hear it, weren't they? But um, yeah, so uh, keep that drum and bass at home. <laughs> 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 that's good advice generally from my point of view. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, thanks again, Steve. I know I've already thanked you once, but that always happens. We always, we always finish like six times each episode. <laughs> <It's just ridiculous. laughs> um, yeah, as always, think... brilliant to have you on again. Yeah, thank you very um, much for inviting me. Yeah, you're always welcome, Steve. Um, we do have well, Vic. You have a little bit of news, don't you? Um, um, I I do. Um, unfortunately, due to personal circumstances, I'm actually going to be sad to say taking a bit of a step back from the podcast i'm not leaving don't worry um you don't get rid of me that easily (laughs) (laughs) um and hopefully i will be able to pop in and do the odd episode every now and then but it won't be every episode i'm afraid um i just have some personal stuff that i have to deal with at the moment but hopefully that won't be it won't be too long and and you know in in a probably couple of months time i'll be back more regularly and don't worry, everyone, it won't just be me on my own. <laughs> I, know, I know some people like that episode, but um, that's not the plan. I've got a few ideas. We've got a couple of really good guests lined up, much better than this episode. Oh, sorry, Steve, I forgot you still on the line. Uh, no. <laughs> it's all right, I know, Steve. He, he's bigger than me. He'll beat me up if I'm too rude. Um, and <laughs> No, we've got some good guests. And where we haven't got a guest, I have ideas for guest hosts. Some of which you may have heard before, but I'm not going to reveal anything yet. So it it won't you know it won't be the same about Vic. Won't be the same about you, Vic. But oh, um, you know we'll we'll make the best of it. That's the way to look at it. And and I will be back. And I said if yeah. I you know if I can drop in for an episode, I will. Um, but yeah, like I said, you know sometimes you just have to. You have a change of priorities. Let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah. So All right. Well, that's it from us. Um, thanks for tuning in, guys. And uh, well. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll catch you soon. Yeah, soon. Take care, everybody. Yep, take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. Or if you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. This episode was edited by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.